Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Picture this. A St. Louis factory finds itself in the center of a labor strike. Its workers are fed up with racially segregated floors and duties. At the end of every week, the hundreds of black women working there are paid an average of $3, which is less than their white counterparts. Demonstrators march on City Hall. Dozens are arrested. The year is 1933, and the workplace is the Funston Nut Factory near downtown St. Louis. At a time the nation was struggling through the Great Depression, highly public protests and demonstrations of discontent in St. Louis drew breathless news coverage. Yet today, that days-long strike is little remembered despite its impact on the labor movement at the time. Now, as it happens, it was exactly 90 years ago this very day that the Funston Nut Strike concluded, and it ended with the factory's owners finally agreeing to pay the workers the wages they demanded. Writer Devin Thomas O'Shea recently chronicled the dramatic events of the Funston Nut Strike for Jacobin Magazine. He calls it one of the most successful labor actions of the Great Depression, and he joins us now to talk with us about it. Devin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Devin, today is the 90th anniversary of an event that many in St. Louis probably haven't heard of. Right. What compelled you to write about it? I think that uh, one of the interesting things about labor history in America is that uh, we are on the other side of the Cold War, and therefore a lot of labor history has been lost during you know, the Red Scare and McCarthyism. And so publications like Jacobin and some of the work that I do, as well as scholars like Keona Irving, who we'll talk about, uh, it's their job to preserve and carry forth the stories that get lost when we um, forget when poor people especially rise up against uh, factory owners or people taking advantage of them. Mm -hmm. So was this strike one that you were familiar with already you know, from years past, or how did it get on your radar, as it were? Yeah, I started, uh, I got really interested in the general strike of 1877. So this is like 50 years before. If you're anything like me, uh, a lot of these strikes just start to blend together. And so we have to find like interesting heuristics to like remember what they are. So (sighs) the railroad strike is very much about uh, black and white workers in the downtown wharf area uniting into a big general strike that shuts down the city for a week and a half or a week straight. Um, Then about 40 years later in the heart of the Great Depression, this strike is all about uh, black female workers Mm -hmm. uh, in the same sort of economic zone, Um, yeah, uh, striking for better conditions in like a economic system that was having people starving in the streets. Um, It's predated by, as you mentioned, uh, the July riot, which happens the year before, where in the middle of the Great Depression, we basically have like spontaneous uh, poor people's campaigns erupting in cities around the country, including St. Louis, where, 
you know, the dispossessed of the city basically march on City Hall and stand outside for days on end. Um, and in the middle of this, uh, mayor, the mayor of St. Louis refuses to meet with the Communist Party, who are organizing a lot of these poor people campaigns. Uh, and 50 black women rush City Hall, and the police inside end up tear gassing the crowd and, uh, you know, scaring everyone off. Uh, but in the middle of this, there's a uh, black male protester who picks up a tear gas canister and hurls it back mm-hmm. at the police, which I think is just, uh, for any scholar or, or anyone interested in St. Louis history, you can definitely see uh, just this echo of Edward Crawford during the Michael Brown protests. He was the guy that became famous for wearing the American flag shirt and throwing yeah. a tear gas canister back at riot police. It's now an iconic image of that time. Yeah. Now, take us back to May 24th, 1933, um, which is the day the strike at the Funston Nut Factory ended. What happened that day 90 years ago? Well, this would be the 11th day of the strike. So, I mean, not very long, about, you know, a little, almost two weeks. But during the strike, uh, Kara Smith, Carrie Smith, sorry, Carrie Smith and Cora Lewis are the big uh, instigators at Funson Nut. And these are very, very young black women. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie is only 18 years old and mm-hmm. she is uh, elected the strike captain. Um, she and Mayor Dickman come to an agreement and we're going to be mature and we're not going to notice that this is a nut strike and that Mayor Dickman versus the nut shellers, that would be immature. (laughs) But (laughs) still, um, Carrie Smith and the mayor come to an agreement uh, and they leave City Hall and go back to the Communist Party headquarters in St. Louis and have a big celebration Mm -hmm. uh, where hundreds of workers have gathered to, you know, they won their wage increases. Mm-hmm. They showed their power in the workplace and their ability to correct some pretty dire situations yeah. uh, that they lived in. And when we say hundreds, we're not talking like two or three hundred. It was more than that. I think that the victory party was like three to five hundred people. Mm-hmm. So that was a big one. Uh, the factory overall had, I believe, well, the July riot had 3,000 people in one of those four poor people campaigns. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that the 3,000 people worked at Funston Nut overall. Okay. Many of, over, uh, many of whom went on strike, both black and white workers. Right. And this was multiple locations too, right? Not just one factory? Yeah. There mm-hmm. were uh, facilities on this side of the river in downtown St. Louis. And then there was, you know, cheaper land on the east side of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. So Funston Nut owned properties all over. So... Our introduction noted racially segregated floors and duties and pay disparity at the Funston factory. Devin, who was employed there and what were the conditions like? Yeah, um, it's hard to picture what like a food processing center in downtown St. Louis would be like during the Great Depression, but um, it's a real case study in sort of the ways that... uh, skin color and gender are used to bifurcate like a worker movement. Mm -hmm. The white, mostly Polish immigrant workers were able to be on the first floor with good ventilation. And then uh, the black female workers would be on the second floor Mm -hmm. where dust particulate from shelling hundreds of thousands of nuts per day would enter the air and you just sit there breathing it in all day. Right. Um, Many of the black female workers were put into the basement also with bad ventilation 
And for a food processing uh, establishment, these factories had terrible bathroom conditions. They had doors that didn't close during the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, not a great place to work. And they were doing different things too, right? Like the actual shelling was mm-hmm. done by the black workers, whereas the the sorting, the the cleaner, I guess, yeah. uh, part of the process was done by, as you said, mostly immigrant but white workers. Yeah, this is sort of like plantation logic where uh, the white immigrant workers get the better uh, jobs to do that are easier and less harmful to your health. Uh, They also worked less hours and got paid more. Mm -hmm. So they got to come in basically an hour after the black workers had to be there, and then they got to leave early, Mm -hmm. which you can only imagine the sort of like contempt that builds up between working people who have to do that every day. Right, right. And just to provide a a, a visual, um, the factory was in the downtown area, Mm -hmm. a couple streets west of Tucker, Mm -hmm. and was located at the edge of Mill Creek Valley. So it would have drawn labor from that neighborhood um, as, as nuts and product came off the wharf downtown. Yeah. What were the demands that, uh, that the strikers were making? Yeah, the, they're hard to understand, I think, to contemporary ears because they're basically measuring things in terms of like cents that are paid per pound of nut. Mm-hmm. And so there's like slogans like 10 and 4 okay. that sort of referred to like we need increases in what you get paid per pound. Mm-hmm. Um, but the important thing I think to just take away from that is that, uh, the, they were trying to, the black women workers especially wanted to get rid of this Jim Crow segregation and the pay scales and also how powerful the person weighing the nuts would have been Mm -hmm. on the factory floor. Uh, that was a big concern and it redounds to the benefit of the Funston owners to make sure that that number is as low as possible. Right. And the, there's no electing somebody new to mayor. There's no electing a new alderman to improve that. That has to be done by the workers. Mm-hmm. We're talking with journalist Devin Thomas O'Shea about the 1933 strike at the Funston Nut, Nut Factory in St. Louis. The strike concluded 90 years ago today. Devin, you wrote about this incident for Jacobin magazine, and the title of your piece includes a prominent quote from Carrie Smith, whom you, who you have mentioned, um, that 18-year-old uh, black woman who organized the strike. And you, you write that on the first morning of the strike, that Smith argued with the factory's boss for two hours and then took to the picket line with, quote, a Bible in one hand and a brick in the other. And she told her co-workers, girls, we can't lose. What do we know about Carrie Smith? And why was she so confident that they would emerge victorious? Uh, it, she's a remarkable figure in history. I think um, the threat of both the brick uh, and then the moral uh, leverage of the Bible is just a, a really beautiful encapsulation of connecting with the people she was working with. Um, We know that she's an extremely young uh, organizer working closely with the St. Louis Communist Party uh, and that the uh, strike is after she's been working in the nut factory for years and years. Uh, They have like, it's very cool. They have clandestine meetings to plot the strike and get people on board and slowly go from factory to factory getting more and more um, buildup. Uh, and she, I mean, it's hard to overestimate that this is 
something that has not happened in the American labor movement before. It's a really keystone example of like, uh, as David Rodiger, a labor historian, says, up until this point, labor is white and male. Mm-hmm. And that this is a huge change in both the civil rights movement that's coming forward and then the dissipation of the American Communist Party, where uh, it's proving that labor is this big pool of people, not just white men at a car factory, which we still kind of think of as a right. labor movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, in fact... Uh, working black women are extremely powerful, especially when they band together in a collective. And they were able to bring on their their white immigrant uh, co-workers too, right? Yeah, there's a really good example from Myrna Fichtenbaum's uh, document of the strike of Nora Diamond, who's quoted in the labor press as saying that the conditions of the black worker don't affect me. And uh, it's led by the wrong, the strike is led by the wrong kind of people. She's referring to the Russians. Um, But then on the second day, lots and lots of the white workers uh, walk off the job as well. So Mm -hmm. there's a huge amount of solidarity. And I think that's important because of what we were just talking about, of the white women workers have it better than the black workers. And yet they can all see that our interests are common. Mm -hmm. No, you mentioned the St. Louis uh, communist party. Mm -hmm. What was their role in in the strike? Mainly the Communist Party at this time is is coming out of sort of four decades of organizing factory work, industrialized work. This is the era of like, this is the end of the era of the Wobblies. Uh, And in St. Louis, the Communist Party is mostly involved in like unionizing workplaces of trying to figure out ways of getting around Um, electoral politics and getting to, like, workers being able to do something political to help each other as neighbors. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, there's a prominent communist strike leader in St. Louis who is part of, we think of Mill Creek also as a mostly black neighborhood or that some of these uh, worker neighborhoods downtown were exclusively one way or the other, but Mm -hmm. there was lots of sort of immigrant and bohemian populations in there, and a lot of radical communist uh, organizers who saw the terrible labor conditions in downtown St. Louis and wanted to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Did that connection lead to any sort of backlash against the workers? Uh, I believe that um, while the strike is a huge uh, example of getting everything the strikers wanted, mostly a pay raise, Uh, After the strike, there's sort of a split between the Urban League and the Communist Party, where the Urban League suddenly realizes that black working women are an incredibly valuable part of their movement, Mm -hmm. and the Communist Party doesn't necessarily learn the lesson of um, creating a bigger tent than is possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is backlash that has ramifications for, as Keona Irving argues, you know, in St. Louis over the next 30 years, there's a tremendous amount of black women radicalizing for housing rights in food services, but um, that it all really starts at the Funston nut strike. And um, at the same time, you get McCarthyism, the Red Scare, uh, mm-hmm. the downfall of the Communist Party. So just to pick up on what you were talking about regarding um, Professor Kiana Irvin. Mm-hmm. 
Like she has argued that the strike was a big deal at the time. And then she said that it was able to bridge local struggles for economic justice and black freedom and broke new ground for working class women's leadership. Can you talk a little bit more about what that new ground was? Sure. Um, I think that the uh, for the most part, you know, Again, as David Rodiger said, this is a huge paradigm shift for both labor rights and this burgeoning civil rights movement. And that uh, Professor Irving talks about in her book, which everyone should go out and get, Gateway to Equality, uh, Ora Lee Malone is another St. Louis black woman who plays a huge role in, our, in organizing, starting in like garment factories in downtown St. Louis. And um, I think that, you know, one of the most important things for us today is to sort of not see these like old ragtime fashiony like a oh, nutsheller or the garment factory. This stuff is happening at Amazon. It's happening at Starbucks, REI. You know, even the writer strike in Hollywood. These mm. are all big activists, are big labor movements, and the fight for fifteen in St. Louis for fast food workers mm-hmm. is uh, just an incredible thing. It shouldn't be fifteen. It should be like twenty five now. But, um, yeah, the people who handle and process your food, the people who are your neighbors who are working three jobs in order to do these things, lots of them uh, are, you know, just barely treading water. And the election of new people, the politics that is strictly electoral, is not necessarily going to get them the things that they need, which is economic relief. Yeah. Do you think to any extent that... The reason people don't know or more people do not know about the Funston nut strike is because there's sort of a PR problem when it comes to communism. Um, I mean, it's been many years since, you know, the, the Iron Curtain came down and everything. But given all that is out in pop culture and the way that we understand certain terms, you know, how much of that do you think presents a, a challenge to more people knowing about this? Yeah, I think that it's a huge problem. It's like a, uh, you know, the Cold War is 30 years over, but we still have the Red Menace all in our imaginations through various forms of, you know, propaganda that's everywhere. But I think that, um, you know, the Great Railroad Strike, the story of St. Louis and labor, all of this is uh, starts in the Gilded Age, right? In 1877, this is sort of the, the Nut Strike is the culmination, an economic depression that lasts for years and years and years. It immiserates and starves half of the city. It's the logical conclusion of capitalism. And there's the story of the Communist Party fighting that at that time. And now today, we live in like the second Gilded Age with, mm-hmm. you know, robber barons that are now technologically savvy and in command of like the huge NSA surveillance state. But we are still seeing, you know, we have so much in common with the Gilded Age now that uh, it's hard not to miss. And that uh, the resurgence of sort of the socialist movement with Bernie Sanders, but then beyond of just the amount of organizing Shout out to the St. Louis Starbucks organizers, especially mm-hmm. sort of and there's a new front line of socialism that's carrying on this working class tradition. Yeah. So last questions here. Is there anything left of the Funston Nut Factory today? Nut Factory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. It's sort of hard to know because they had so many facilities that were spread mm-hmm. all over. But for the most part, uh, I believe... The buildings are no longer around, and then it was also hard to find 
um, people whose relatives were uh, strike leaders or people in the strike. I would love to hear from them if mm-hmm. they are out there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's another weird thing about St. Louis is that we keep uh, destroying big parts of our history and uh, kind of forgetting about it. Mm-hmm. And do we know what happened with Kerry Smith? Uh, that's another question. Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, she does not go on to have any like huge labor dubs like this one, mm-hmm. but I, I should look into that at some point. Yeah. Well, for all you listening out there, if you happen to have any connections to what happened to Carrie Smith, let Please, us know. Please, yeah. <laughs> Devin Thomas O'Shea is a writer and journalist based here in St. Louis. Thank you, Devin, for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. You can read Devin's story on the website of Jacobin Magazine. It's called In 1930s St. Louis, Black Women Workers Went on Strike and Won. We've also linked to it on our website, stlonair.show. Coming up, the best ball ever. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.